Hi there, welcome to the More Civil Podcast. This is a podcast for Blacks, Asians, and those who love them. I am Mo, and I am your host, ready to spark your curiosity as I take you on this adventurous ride of exploring cultures through the stories of my guests from all over the world. On this show, we get really personal, discussing salient issues that are relevant to our contemporary age and also building community around them. As our guests exercise courage and vulnerability in sharing their life's experiences, we hope that in turn you are inspired by them and that you get the courage needed to set your own stories free. Enjoy the ride and thank you so much for listening. Welcome back, welcome back everyone. Um, this is Mo and... Ayomi Day. Hi everyone. <laughs> well, I have to reduce that lag time between that. <laughs> welcome back. This is the More Simple Podcast with Ayomi Day. And today we... I know you're probably tired of hearing our voices alone on the show, right? We're so into each other. But um, today we have a wonderful guest. And I say wonderful because I know her. I've known her for quite a while now. And so without further ado, drum roll everybody. Um, join us in welcoming Dr. Natasha Shabakova to the podcast. And welcome, welcome, Natasha. For those who don't know her already, she's been on the show once as um, we did the academic panel. And I know she's quite modest about introducing herself, but let me try and do justice to her story. Emily, she's super smart. She's super brainy. She, we went to UT Austin together. So she was my senior um, for, in grad school. She's currently a faculty at Western New England University College of Pharmacy. And she does research in uh, fields of health economics and also outcomes and practice, pharmacy practice. She's an avid reader. She's recommended uh, great re- reads for me. She's also a hiker, a thinker, and a proud Russian. And we're going to explore bits and pieces of her story today. And she's she's a great thinker. I would, I'll just say that about her. Well, without further ado, Natasha, welcome to the podcast. We're so glad to have you. Thank you, Mo, for this great introduction. Yes, it's um, yeah, it's really good to meet you, Natasha. Um, and um, yeah, thanks again for joining us. Thanks again for being part of this. Tolan is the one who has um, you know really had a chance to know you, and I'm just getting to know you. So um, I'm going to be the audience surrogates in this conversation. Um, so I was wondering if you could, if there's anything. Um, you'd like to like if there's one thing you'd like that people don't know about you when they meet you um that that you usually find surprising what would that be oh that's a tough question uh i um i think um uh that's that's a little bit i guess you know uh impromptu i'll try to come up with something so surprising in the sense that they wouldn't have expected that something about me well, um, it's a tough one. I just haven't thought about it this way. I think um, I think it's uh, just being a faculty, right? What I tend to learn about my students is that when I ask them uh, what books you read, I get an uh, answer that nothing. Uh, and I think the surprising thing would be that... Uh, 
personally about myself is that I read a lot of books simultaneously. Uh, and if someone is to buy by my house or bedroom, they will see a stack of 12 plus books uh, that I read in various stages of progress. So I think it could be potentially surprising. So it's not one or two, but 12 plus, and I try to keep up with them so to make progress. Um, and I think that can be surprising, uh, given that we transition to a culture where people, where people uh, first don't read hard copy books as much, and second, don't read at all any books. So I think that would be what I name. Yeah, you would think you would think in in uni where you ask people what do you read, um, <laughs> they would say something. So yeah, you you yeah, I definitely wouldn't have been expecting. Um, I don't read anything. Like, why, why are you here? <laughs> I, I get that trend a lot because I I do like when I, I I have a course that I teach on public health, and one of the things I do is just to go around and ask about my students to tell me their mm. hobbies and fun facts. And I've never really heard anyone say I currently read. And there was a particular time I was talking about a book. I, I can't remember the title of the book, but I had this assumption that at least you guys should have read it. Half of the class should have read it. And it came like, Dr. Moore, no, we're so stressed out. Like, pharmacy school is so, you know, stressful. We have to, you know, cram a lot of stuff and study. We don't have time to read anymore. And so those that were avid readers before joining pharmacy school, I think there's just something about, you know, intensive programs like, you know, pharmacy and medicine. It just takes away the joy from reading. I don't know if you went through that phase as well, Natasha. Oh, you beg to differ. No, no. I have to say that I've been a reader uh, since I remember. Even in pharmacy school, I would frequent the library and assemble. Uh, I used to live in a dorm, whereas downstairs there was a library, and it was like a boon for me <laughs> to have that access to the library in the dorm as well as the regular library on campus. So no, they were the same. I would assemble those stacks and keep up with you know something that is. Uh, not related to pharmacy to keep myself stimulated uh, in diverse ways. So that's that's why I find it very surprising uh, from current uh, students where uh, I have to admit the last time I asked that was my PY1 class uh, and I believe two students shared that they read something out of 40 plus. So, uh, so it's not everyone, but I still feel like two out of 40 is very low. Uh, and a majority of them would say just like what you said more that hey I'm so busy and overwhelmed with pharmacies that I no longer have time uh, to to get into any books which I find very sad because I think therapeutically there has been a lot of research supporting the fact that mm-hmm. um, reading has um, this uh, depression tackling effects and all those vir- various uh, positive health effects that it's just so disturbing that we don't use such a simple tool anymore uh, or people rather don't use and get distracted with uh, things that just you know exacerbate uh, mental health issues versus, you know, completely kick out things that can, you know, alleviate and help. Ah, so I have a follow-up question, follow-up question for you, but I'm going to ask Dr. Ayomide this question. This is, I know you are, you know, a physician as well, and you've always been an avid reader for the longest time I've remembered you. Has there been times where you kind of just, you know, stopped reading as much because we're preoccupied with say medical school and all that this is for me yeah 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 you're the only physician here so <laughs> no, just, um, <laughs> well interesting we have, a, yes. we have a doctorate degree but we cannot save lives okay 
we can save lives in other ways, you know, by the power of the word. <laughs> I have, I, I have recently actually, um, but yet yeah, not med school for me because I was actually very deliberate about. Um, because I remember when I got into med school, there was. I remember meeting someone who said, "Oh, you have to. You're going to have to leave everything behind. You're just going to have to like study all the time." You're not going to have time for any of this stuff, um, which I remember thinking, "What? No, no, I'm, I'm sorry, but no." <laughs> uh, so I, I, but I'm glad I heard that actually, because I think that made me very deliberate about keeping up my reading habits, uh, because yeah. I knew now that it was under threat. Um, but but yeah, I think as I've grown older, I think what I would say is I've gotten a lot more discriminatory. Um, because the older I think the older you get the more you realize you know you haven't got that much time so you don't have time to waste on nonsense so yep. I'm, I'm much quicker yep. about like <laughs> leaving books halfway if it's like yeah no, you're not doing it for me I'm sorry but this is not you're, you're not living yeah, up to your yeah. potential <laughs> yeah I used to have a problem with not finishing books but I realized that even some series I just discard them because and especially for books that are so popular and I'm like, this is not it for me. So I just discard. Um, so Natasha, my follow-up question for you was going to be this. I've been able to tease out that people who are like really, really avid readers, they tend to be f- like infrequent social media users. Like they're not heavy. You don't heavily see them on Instagram or um, having those heavy presences on Facebook and Twitter. Was that? Would you say that's also what has really helped you to cope the distraction? Like your social media, u- media use is, has really you know gone down? Or it was never really as high as before? Uh, well, I have to admit that when I started graduate school, that's where the popularity of Facebook just was gaining uh, momentum, right? Uh, we, I started in 2007. It was just around for a couple of years or so. And uh, everyone on campus was on social media. So that was when I myself got myself into that bucket as well. Uh, but I, uh, but what has happened recently, exactly last year and about this time uh, in May uh, of 2021, I made a deliberate decision to disconnect. So I went ahead and deactivated my Facebook account uh, and I no longer uh, check it at all. So, and my next step is completely deleted. So uh, I have found for myself that, yes, as you get older, you realize that uh, time is finite. Uh, and if you spend it on Facebook, you don't have the time available for reading, right? So, uh, and um, at that very time, I sort of discovered that book I shared with you while the story of civilization. Durant, yeah. Uh, volume, uh, history uh, of uh, humankind and I've said that, hey, I really want to you know, get through it. Uh, it's so fascinating and I have to assist myself and the way to assist is get off um, social media, in particular Facebook. So yes, I definitely don't have presence on Facebook anymore. I do have the Twitter and Instagram, but just those don't take as much time and lately I also rarely check them. Um, particularly Instagram, occasionally Twitter, just because it's sometimes so easy to keep up with certain uh, professional use there. Um, but in my free time, yes, definitely, it's I try to pick up a book, a book instead of hopping on uh, on social media. 
Dang, imagine how the world would be if everybody picked a book instead of going on Facebook. But look, I would like to hear your feedback, like your your reactions to that. Oh no, def- I mean, you can definitely no. testify. I I can't remember the last time I've been on Facebook actually. Um, and for me, it wasn't even a deliberate decision. So yeah, I've just I've just not been on Facebook in in months. Um, it's always weird when someone posts me something. Like now, when people send me links to Facebook many times i won't even bother clicking on it's almost like you know what if you're gonna if your link is on facebook um it's probably not that important <laughs> um you you sent me something on facebook recently tolani um, and it's just because it was you that i checked it up because <laughs> a lot of times i'll just not bother um instagram too is i still have my account on facebook and instagram but i've just not been very i barely check them twitter i'm still active on but I haven't tweeted in a while. Um, and I used to tweet fairly actively. Um, and I find Twitter interesting because I think, I guess because I, so a big part of why I haven't been tweeting in a while is because I haven't been writing in a while. But I think there's something about writers and Twitter. Um, and the fact that Twitter is very much about words. So I think, I think. Yeah, that's why people are so angry. Well, there. no, people say that all the time. But my Twitter, my, my Twitter is actually very great. So I think it's very much about like who you are following and who your timeline is, to be honest. But Twitter, I think because of the, the way it's designed, it, it's it's almost like a selection bias. All social media, all social media so like is, that. I think. It's I know, but I think this is not even me coming up with this idea. Statistically it's been shown that people you have more, you know, um what's the word? Extreme users on Twitter, gathering on Twitter than in other places. Well, Even I, follow, I, I, get, I can know, see why that would there's a way you can because obviously, like Twitter, you can follow anyone, whereas on Facebook, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. relationship based. But I think I think I'm just saying, like from a writing perspective, if you're if, if you're interested in ideas, Twitter is also very much is about ideas. Is like there's no there's no it's not about images yeah. or videos as much. It's literally about agree, your words yeah, yeah, and yeah. the power Quick of your ideas, words. Ideas in fewer words. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And I think that okay, appeals to writers. Okay, for both of you, here's my follow-up question. Okay. Agreed. For both of you, so you've knocked down Twitter, knocked down Facebook, Instagram. Let's talk about your YouTube views. Because that's, to me, that's where the temptation is. Like, Facebook, you know, I'm not quite as active as I used to be before. I just go on there randomly. Instagram, mostly for posting my, you know, my podcast and whatnot. But YouTube... That, that that hole of YouTube that you just sink into and it's like, oh my gosh, four hours later I'm still, you know, listening and watching stuff. What's your um I guess your usage with YouTube? Because that's still social media, right? Oh, Even though ask, it's not quite as platform is not it's not designed for that two way conversation that you'd have with like, you know, other platforms. So I would like to hear your thoughts. All right. So I do as well. Uh get a little bit, you know, stuck occasionally on YouTube just because sometimes the content gets so relevant. I use it occasionally, quite infrequently, but still for certain uh, snippets of videos for class. Uh, for example, you know, teaching pharmacoeconomics, it's very tough to explain the concept of um, measuring quality of life with this time trade-off and standard gamble methods. So I found an account of a physician. He is a pediatrician in Indiana, Uh, whereby he does these great videos about various healthcare topics. And one of those videos is describing how you would go ahead to measure 
uh, to get to quality adjusted life here via time trade-off and standard gamble with, you know, himself sort of, you know, doing a role play. Uh, and I incorporate it into my class um, and occasionally in others as well, but that's the main one. Uh, but obviously, you know, when you hop on YouTube, there's always some relevant suggestions and you click on them and you start watching. So uh, interestingly, I've been following this channel of, uh, <laughs> of a, a girl who is Spanish. She was born and raised in Barcelona and went to study Russian in Moscow. So, and her channel was set up as someone who is doing a homework assignment with doing short videos in Russian about various topics. And I found it so addictive. I uh, came across it about a year ago. And I have to admit, you know, every now and then I hop on her channel and check those videos of a foreigner speaking Russian with a very good quality uh, stuff and just, you know, get that uh, uh, pleasure, I guess, you know, just hearing someone who masters the language for a relatively short time. And, you know, she has a huge following, I think at least quarter million subscribers or so. Some videos are, you know, half a million plus of views. Uh, and nothing, you know, she's just your, you know, simple, simple former student who was a foreign student in Russia. And now she has her channel that she keeps running and sharing views, you know, on Russia from a European perspective. And that's something that I'm guilty to be a little bit addicted to because I hop on the channel often and then voila, it's, you know, uh, 11.30 p.m. And wow, <laughs> how did the hour run? So no, I have that thing. I use it. I think that 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 that's a great um, segue into like the, the, the one question I wanted to ask you, which is something um, that we that you thought you would miss um, when you moved here from from Russia. Um, but just to say before that, um, I don't know if Tolan, I don't know if you saw this video that was going around recently about a Portuguese a Portuguese. Um, a young Portuguese man in Nigeria who had learned Yoruba and was speaking it very fluently. Oh, um, what's his name? Um, Diego. I, can't, Ayola, I think that was his name. But it was wild. Oh, it was oh wild. Gosh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, when, when you were talking yeah, about Thiago, that. Tiago, yes. Tiago. Yeah. yeah. When you were talking yeah, about yeah. that just now, Natasha, I just thought, I just, I, like, I could relate to, like, that sort of pleasure of. It's it's a sort of vicarious. Pl- it's like seeing yourself from another person through another person's eyes, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like yeah. And and I suppose for 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 us, it's almost this thing of, you know, it's not often you see someone who doesn't like have your skin color, um, and speaking your language like absolutely fluently. Um, I don't know if you ever had that sort of experience, like maybe seeing a a black or brown person, um, just speaking like fluent Russian, like. As well as like, if you'd heard them on the phone, you wouldn't have thought that they were, they were not Russian at all. Like they sounded perfectly, you know, it's almost, and then you see the person like, whoa, I did not expect that. Yeah. I think it, it probably is inapplicable to skin color per se, but you see the person speaking with an accent, right? Because accent, obviously, as you start learning language later in life is nearly unavoidable. Uh, but the fluency level, like cultural insights. It's like uh, looking at yourself, as you just said, right? <laughs> from, you know, like from a side, right? This person completely understands and grasps the cultural aspects, the language use. Yes, he or she speaks with an accent, but the 
uh, insights uh, are just remarkable that the person was able to master. So, yeah, that's, I think, the main thing that catches that, you know, uh, attention a lot. And I think that's the beauty of social media platforms like YouTube, because, you know, imagine if you had caught YouTube off your life, how would you know how to teach your students, you know, um, using the TT or the trade-off, you know, type trade-off and standard gamble and also finding a Spanish person who speaks um, um, Russian. So let me... No, yeah, of course. No, there are benefits, definitely, and deniable, for yeah, sure. Yeah. So I know you and I, we've had conversations about, you know, just our experiences as immigrants. And I definitely can see some differences and similarities because, again, our countries are different. Like, our birth home countries are different from, you know, we have different experiences. But I'm curious to know um, this question about you. What what would you say has been your experience as a Russian living in America? Because, you know, you're American now as well. But what was it like? Because I, I ask this because, you know, phenotypically you look white. But of course, when you start talking and your ideas and your just your culture as well is so different from the U.S. But you can pass you can pass off as being white. But we just and I don't want to in that way diminish your experiences and the things you had to overcome as a whole. But I'm curious to know what were some of the I guess the hardest thing about adjusting to the U.S. culture. Um, well, I think you know probably I would start with <clears throat> with the beginning, right? Moving here as a graduate student uh, in 2007, right to UT Austin, which is very uh, international by nature. Uh, of majority of graduate programs, at least in sciences, are comprised of um, uh, foreign students, right? Uh, that's where I met yourself and uh, a lot of our friends uh, from from graduate school come from various. Uh, countries as well and the circle of friends I have to say right was that international despite us living in Austin Texas right uh, um, uh, personal interactions of mine I would say 80 plus percent were with people born elsewhere so at that time I think you know there was not much um not much adjustment. You just felt that, you know, uh, part of this uh, fantastic community uh, whereby you learn from, you know, from this different cultures, which you wouldn't have had chance to interact with otherwise, right? And I think the U.S., this beauty of the United States is the fact that it attracts people from all over the world um, uh, and allows to uh, integrate them easily, unlike certain other places, right, which also have immigrants, but that the environment is completely different. Um, uh, but then, obviously, you know, starting to work, um, uh, it has slowly started to change, uh, probably with uh, with the birth of my daughter uh, and sort of, you know, meeting parents uh, of uh, uh, other children, right, either in daycare or in school, who perhaps are, uh, you know, your um, local people, right, who haven't had a lot of um, international exposure, that's where I probably started to a little more acutely realize that we are somewhat different. Um, but again, you know, those interactions are relatively, take relatively short period of time. And uh, at work, again, uh, my environment is quite international, right? The department uh, where I work consists um, on 80% plus of uh, foreign faculty, right? Foreign-born faculty we who have uh, gone through graduate programs uh, as foreign students and sort of, you know, continued with academia as myself in a very similar path. So 
it's 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 hard, you know. I think uh, contextual is probably being a parent uh, that uh, I have uh, perspectives uh, that are different from your traditional, probably American parent, uh, and that's where I started to acutely realize that hey, I'm actually different. Um, but before that, I I never felt uh, any. Um, difficulties, I would say, or um, things that would concern me, uh, interestingly, right? Uh, but I think it's all due to the environment where I ended up, right, highly international. I mean, our department at Austin, Texas, right, as a college of pharmacy was highly international. Austin, Texas itself as a, as a city is very diverse and international. Uh, and then my department here, despite the you know, the Springfield area is is not that diverse per se, but the department is still very international. Uh, I was speared from, you know, from the cultural um, dissimilarities. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I can imagine how having kids just makes you think differently because you've been in the U.S. way longer than how you're the age of your child and you've, you're have you used to a certain lifestyle and then when you have a child and you start thinking about oh my gosh, my environment is different because you're thinking about how to raise a child. You have your own culture. Your child is going to have, you know, you have your own culture that you came with, the culture you've adopted in the U.S. And then you have a stud person now who she might also have to have a mixture of both. And I've met your daughter on the phone. I know she speaks fluent Russian. Good job, mama. Um, so yeah, but thanks for sharing that. Thanks for sharing that. And um, it was really nice to know. My question is going to be this. So on your bio, you had, you know, talked about being a proud Russian. And I know there's a lot happening in your country right now. And I won't put you in a position to serve as an, like a, a, a delegate to your country because I strongly believe that people are people, countries are countries. But um, what does it mean to be a proud Russian in, at a day and an age, at the time of this recording, where the popular opinion about Russia as a whole hasn't been very positive and what does it mean to you to, um, I guess, what's that one part of your identity as a Russian that I think people don't really, people tend to misconstrue? Oh, that's that's a great question. Oh, thank you for asking it. So I think, um, obviously, just like, you know, being a proud Nigerian or being a proud Chinese or proud Indian, we have that, you know, uh, multi kaleidoscope right of 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 things that construct construct uh, construct that identity. But uh, for me, I think uh, the the two main things is probably obviously the language, right? That uh, um, we all consider our languages right very rich and very. Um, important to 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 our identity and you know given that uh, uh, a lot of um, classic literature right that we consider um, worldwide known uh, has been written by uh, by uh, famous Russian authors so belonging to 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 the language uh, that Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Turgenev spoke uh, is something that uh, I find uh, uh, very important, right, and uh, very uh, honored to, to, to belong to that. Um, 
Uh, and uh, the other thing, I think, uh, again, which is, you know, sort of expanding on the aspect of uh, great literature is the culture, right? The composers and uh, artists uh, uh, that are world-renowned, uh, uh, quite a number of them come uh, come from Russia. And again, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's very... Uh, honorable to 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 know that Tchaikovsky is someone who uh, who was Russian and uh, many other composers um, and I don't think it would be quite different right for say you know a German speaking about Goethe or um, other famous you know uh, Germans uh, so that's that's essentially what it is thank you for that and yes I do love um Dostoevsky's book, Crime and Punishment, is one of my favorite reads. And Nutcracker, I mean, who cannot fall in love with Nutcracker? So, yes, we do know that Russia has contributed a lot to, you know, even the modern world. But my follow-up question, which I asked earlier on, but I want to say it again, would be, why do you think Russia is, you know, heavily, heavily misconstrued by the West? Uh, well, I guess, you know, that will be personal opinion, clearly, right? I'm not a, a political observer. I'm just, you know, your regular uh, person with preconceptions and uh, sort of limited, I guess, view from a big geopolitics standpoint. Uh, uh, but still, from, from, from that narrow opinion, I would say that... Uh, uh, it's a, it's a large country with uh, substantial uh, natural resources, right? Uh, so uh, natural gas and oil, um, uh, and um, other raw materials uh, have uh, been construct have been taken a large portion of uh, of the. Um, of the revenue of the country, right, uh, and allow the country to to be run, uh, selling those resources. So, uh, versus if you start comparing, you know, taking a country in the European Union, for example, uh, comparatively, right, the the take by size just a small chunk, uh, like a small small fraction uh, of of uh, of Russia. Uh, and um, resources-wise, they have been relying on uh, on Russia, and we can follow that, right, with current events, with the natural gas supply uh, and oil supply being uh, sort of interrupted due to uh, current conflicts. So, so I think from that standpoint, if probably if I were a citizen of a small European country, uh, I would feel envious, right? Uh, why this large country has all these resources that we have to buy them from, you know, why we don't, you know, grab a chunk of this country and then we don't have to buy the resources. I, you know, I think that, you know, that layman perspective would be probably the envy. Uh, and um, uh, and obviously that envy in, in part creates certain level of animosity, uh, and uh, the animosity is the next step is, you know, how you can, you know, make the country less, uh, less successful. I, and again, I'm talking as a layperson uh, uh, perspective uh, where, you know, why the resources aren't coming, you know, from Germany. And Germany, obviously, we know from the World War II has had the aspirations to take over those resources uh, and um, come to, um, in 1941, attack the, the country in the, goal, in the uh, ultimate aim to take over. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, despite the defeat, I think those aspirations have not, you know, subsided. So they're still there. Yeah, and I'm, I I didn't phrase my question very well because I didn't want to put you in a position where I felt like you had to defend the choices your leader and everyone in your country, you know, has made so far because I think that's a lot to ask of an individual. But on an individual level, let me share an example. So as a Nigerian, and I know you know a lot about my country, but some of the news we get here as, as a Nigerian living in the U.S., they're not always positive news. And I used to have this immense pressure on myself to be almost like twice as good so that anyone meeting a Nigerian, me, it can help counter some of the bad impressions they have on my country. And imagine just how stressful that is. I'm not even getting paid to do this. Just being a good individual is good enough. Would you say it's put you on a lot of pressure to be like a good Russian more or you, you're not really faced by that? And I'd like to know why either ways. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, probably not. Uh, and maybe because I'm sort of, you know, in a lucky position where I have, you know, have been leading quite secluded lifestyle with uh, with a limited number of uh, friends or acquaintances. Uh, and I know, you know, some of my friends have encountered um, difficulties to to interact with some of their friends who uh, who come from, you know, uh, um, CIS countries, right? Uh, and uh, at this point uh, of time and conflict, right, if there are some different views, uh, some of them had to actually seize the contact and friendships uh, due to this fact. Uh, but for me, you know, someone had, you know, uh, uh, been fond of books and reading and sort of, you know, having my own little uh, mini world with very few people um, around, right? So I, I haven't had that uh, that pressure to to encounter. Uh, and again, you know, I'm, I'm quite lucky, I think, for, for that, because pro- it's probably quite difficult, right, to say, have a friend who, you know, who comes from, from another country that, uh, uh, that doesn't appreciate Russia anymore. And then you have to seize friendships for that reason. So I, I didn't have such a situation. Right. I was I was just gonna say, um I, I there's something I often think about which I don't know if you resonate with, um, Natasha. Um and it's um I don't know if you've heard me say this before, Tolani. Um that I'm not always proud of Nigeria, but I'm always proud of Nigerians. Um I don't know if I don't know if that's um if that's something you resonate with, Natasha. Um, and it's for me, it's just sort of the, how I think about the fact that my country, my country as a government often does things that do not represent, that I feel do not represent my country as a people. Um, and one of the things I've learned to start doing, um, is to think about, you know, think about like when I talk about political, um, political, like, nations in general to start to think in terms of things like the russian government the chinese government the nigerian government um and not just the russians the chinese the nigerians which um because i think that does create this you know difficulty of where you're conflicting um the people of any country with the actions that their government are taking and, and especially as someone who is coming from a country where 
the government is often not you know doesn't really care sometimes about what the people think yeah no i think i think that's a great point uh i am either i think that's uh something that I haven't thought about in this angle, but it really makes me think that it's important to always turn to this angle, right? Separating the people uh, from the government. Yes, separating people from the government and uh, thinking in, in that term. Uh, but I have to, again, come back to my reading passion, which uh, is currently... Uh, at this series of books called Story of Civilization, right, which I already mentioned by Will and Ariel Duran. And what I have realized um, being on the fifth volume right now, I'm on the stage of Renaissance, right, that's Europe of your uh, 14th and 15th century, is uh, that um, the idea of uh, governments and regular people hasn't changed much across the century, right? If we start from, uh, you know, ancient cultures of China, India, Japan, and transition to the Roman Empire and Byzantine Empire, um, there were governments and there were regular lay people, right? The simpletons, right? Who, you know, did all the work for to support those governments. Uh, and the, the main aim of government, right? The elite is to have really, you know, high quality of life. And for the rest of the people is to support that, right? And to work for them. Uh, and despite all the changes, right? Democracies being born and then disappearing and then being born again, I felt like um, getting to that stage of Renaissance, right? Uh, which is, you know, volume five and going through the ancient history of China, India, Japan, and then the early stages of um, uh, of the Greece and Roman Empire uh, made me realize that you know, despite uh, this you know twenty first centuries where we currently live, conceptually, uh, conceptually, the life of uh, of a common person has not changed. Uh, it you know, there is a government and there is a common person, and no matter which country we take, which period of history we take. A uh, common person, uh, you know, destiny is often sad uh, versus, you know, <laughs> the government, the elite has reasonable quality of life and reasonable life. And the fact that the governments rarely thought about their people uh, has been propagating through uh, centuries and centuries and centuries and keeps propagating. So, so yeah, and that's, that's where thinking about government versus people is important when you speak about particular uh, state, right, or country. Uh, and uh, maybe remember in the context of uh, history uh, that, uh, that the, uh, the life of, of an average person never resembles, you know, what their government uh, is uh, projecting uh, to the world. Uh, is important. And I think it goes back to what I said earlier about people are people, countries are countries. And the next question will be, so we've just talked about just your experience, um, you know, being, uh, I mean, a Russian in the U.S. and just, you know, what you've had to learn since having your daughter. Um, my follow-up question will also be, what about, what, what aspect of cultural interactions do you find the most frustrating and how would you go about changing that? Interesting. Uh, well, uh, I think, um, um, yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I feel like it's, it's highly dependent on, on context, right? I cannot really generalize a particular experience to, 
to other experiences. So, uh, but I found that uh, I will repeat myself, but that's where I feel, you know, that when you interact with people who don't read a lot, you don't resonate with them. And it doesn't matter whether this particular person is uh, an American, a Spaniard, or Nigerian, right? Uh, you just don't resonate. Just the context of that person is limited. Uh, so, and, you know, and that's probably the, that, you know, that interaction, um, irrespective of where you are, uh, rings back the same, right? So if the person is limited, right, uh, in terms of his or her worldview, uh, then you potentially run into some either communication issues or you just perhaps, you know, try to avoid any potential future contact altogether just because, you know, uh, the limited context of that, you know, vis-a-vis is just doesn't ring any uh, resonance with you and you you prefer to, to stop communication. Wow, that's profound. You have a subculture of just, you know, like you've you've empowered yourself. The way I could relate to your response is that you're you're avid in your love for reading and all that. And if you find people who cannot really relate to so many things, you know, it's like oh, we're not gonna be able to communicate with or without them. Not even with consideration of whatever culture they're from. It's about this particular culture that you're very very, um, I guess, interested in. Yeah, and it's, it's I feel I feel it's culture independent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's more you know your personal. Um, partner or friend or acquaintance, right? Worldview uh, that that becomes relevant, right? And it doesn't matter which uh, which culture he or she is coming from. Uh, I have to admit, uh, my daughter uh, catches the bus for for her school, and I chat with uh, both the bus driver as well as the bus monitor. Uh, when the weather is warm, they get out and, you know, stand there while the kids get on the bus. Uh, the bus monitor is Puerto Rican and the um, bus driver is American. And I have to admit, you know, we find, we strike very profound conversations in those few minutes that, uh, that we get, the kids get on the bus, uh, and, you know, they're open-minded people who, you know, like, you know, like to learn things and maybe have some background. Uh, just the other day, I was sharing something, uh, some videos with YouTube videos, by the way, with a bus driver because he was interested to learn about a more beyond the headlines of the current conflict in Russia. Uh, and I was just, you know, very happy that he asked me about it and said that, you know, could you please perhaps, you know, share with me some readings or, or other resources? And I was able to do that. So, and, and I guess, you know, it, it completely doesn't matter, right? You know, whether he's American, he's just a person who has a desire to learn. Uh, and if you encounter those people, it's always a pleasure uh, to interact with them or irrespective of their, you know, backgrounds, culture, country of origin and so on. like that but i don't really know so much about russia but um maybe just in a few words just maybe tell us a little bit about what, what it was like growing up there and um what would you say is that one or two childhood memory um you keep going to and when i think about before i you know i, I have you answer that question when i think about russia i think about what i think it was Winston churchill who said 
Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Kind of like the Russian dolls, you know, <laughs> that's so full of themselves. <laughs> so, but, um, so just tell us, let me just, what your childhood was like and what's that one or two memories you keep going back to and why? Thank you. Thank you more for this question. So uh, just to contextualize, right, about half of my uh, of my forming years, you know, were spent uh, at the time when it was not Russia, but it was USSR. Uh, and then the remaining part was spent, right, of my adult uh, adulting, or rather growing up, was spent in the 90s, right, when it has become Russia. Um, uh, Russia is definitely not homogeneous, right? Ethnically, it's a very diverse country. Uh, a lot of various ethnic groups uh, live there. Uh, a lot of religions uh, are present, right? Your main religions are definitely are there, which is, you know, your Orthodox Christianity, which is the main religion, uh, and then Islam and um, Buddhism and Judaism. Uh, so definitely, uh, so that that means uh, that points to the diversity of uh, of people um, uh, living there. And uh, uh, coming back to the experience, I think you know the experience in USSR was you know uh, was homogeneous for many people who grew up at that period of time. Right, uh, that was nineteen uh, eighties for me. Uh, sort of, you know, your traditional, um, uh, traditional environment where you know your school children get to be, you know, uh, it's called octobrionic, which is, you know, a, 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 a someone who is practicing, you know, who is planning to become a pioneer uh, when he transitions to middle school. So I was able to be an octobrionic, but I never be, be, has have become pioneer because that's when uh, the USSR fell apart. So it's very structured and interesting experience, right? The I think the uh, public school education has been very high quality uh, and reading was something that was um, cultivated. So uh, a lot of uh, uh, people in the country uh, have, have been reading. And what I find again interesting is that um, Russian people are much more well-versed about even American literature than people in America are. So Mark Twain uh, or Harriet Beecher Stowe is your common name that everyone knows them. And you can encounter some people who, you know, may not have read uh, Mark Twain books or Beecher Stowe books. So I think that's that's, that's uh, something that I uh, definitely can say, you know, that's part of growing up, right? Being familiar not only with uh, classic Russian literature, but also world literature, uh, quite, quite, you know, closely and intimately. Uh, and then uh, when the 90s came, right, and the country was sort of a little bit in uh, trying to find the new identity, that was a little, you know, kind of blurred, I think. You know, there was no national idea present at that point in time, right? Uh, and economically, uh, the country was not in great shape with enterprises from the Soviet time uh, falling apart and some people finding themselves economically in, um, you know, quite difficult situation. So, but I think still, you know, the remnants of the strong education continued to carry the country forward um, and uh, and shaped, you know, those people who were growing up in, in that period of time. Uh, because I definitely can say that, you know, appreciation for reading has been, you know, uh, nurtured from elementary school and was with me in middle and high school. And obviously high school was a time when there was no longer USSR. 
Uh, and back to the second part of your question about childhood memories, I, I have to say that those were in the countryside of my grandmother. So my, my grandmother, uh, when she got older, she would spend winter time with us in my home city. And then in summer, she would go back to the house where uh, she lived most of her life. And there was a orchard and she would, you know, keep some chicken and uh, a pig, like a small pig. Uh, and I would, you know, come there at the end of school year in May and spend three months until end of August. And that was some of the most fulfilling periods of, of my childhood that I, I maybe not appreciated as much back then. Um, but now I feel that, you know, being close to nature and spending time with my grandma and learning her wisdom uh, and uh, advice and just general look at, uh, at, at things have been very enriching. And now I, you know, I just uh, with fondness uh, fall back on those memories because they were so uh, pleasant. Oh, wow. Thanks for that. It's also warm to hear about your grandma and just the impact it seems, you know, the interactions you've had with her, you know, has, um, has, um, you know, how it's shaped your life. My final question before I hand it over to Dr. Aminde will be this. What's that one book? And I know it's, it might be very difficult for you to answer that you say has really changed your, 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 I guess your, that has informed your process. Another way of asking that question would be what's your, what's that book that has, you know, I think you're the most impactful book you've ever read and why? Uh, well, uh, I guess, you know, if you would have asked me about, you know, before December 2020, I would have been, you know, started to think deeply about it and maybe had a different answer. Uh, but in December 2020, that's when I discovered for myself the story of civilization. I knew you say that. The person convinced me to go buy that book. I have like eight yes. volumes of them, Randy. Right? I need to read this me. book. You need yes. to. Yes. And, and, you know, Wait, is this, this is... This is not Will Durant, is it? It's Will Durant yeah. and his wife, Ariel. Yes. So starting December oh, 20th, right. that book is the story of civilization. Just because it's so, you know, it's just encompasses everything. Yeah. It's yeah. so many aspects of our life uh, in general that I just cannot, you know, stop appreciating it and recommending it to people I, who ask me about, you know, yeah. favorite books. Yeah. So, Again, the book, by the way, is not written for scholars because they are based largely on secondary sources. But it has such a deep emphasis on cultural history and which really, I think, sets the book apart from like, you know, um, standard narrative history. And this was before the internet became a thing. So imagine the tons of research. And they wrote it across like, was it four decades, like 40 years? Imagine dedicating your life. I remember reading the foreword for the first one and it goes, I'm just going to write this one book. But then <laughs> I ended up being nine, uh, sorry, 10 more books. But yeah, I knew you were going to say Fam- that. Famous yeah, last I'm, words. I'm so, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, and I wish I had a book club that was exploring that because there's so, like I read some parts, I'm like, who, who can I share this with? Because it's really mind-blowing stuff, right? So, um, but thanks for answering that. I'm going to yield the mic now to Dr. Emilia to close us off and maybe ask some follow-up questions if you have. I was going to ask, um, I don't think I, I think you you may have hinted at this a little bit, but um, I like to sort of hear when you first when you first moved. What did you think you would miss um, versus what did you actually miss?
No, that's a great question because uh, something that I haven't shared with uh, with uh, uh, with you yet is that my grandfather from my father's side is a gypsy. So you know who gypsies are, right? So even though I'm not necessarily looking like a gypsy like personally, the Romanis. Right? The Romanis? Yes, the Romanians. I exactly. know that about you. Yeah, wow. so I'm quarter a Romani because obviously my grandfather was a Romani, and my he married a, a Slavic Russian woman, and then my father is only half the Romani. Right? That must have he been quite like, a sensation. The marriage that happened the first time. Ooh. Yes, he was. He, he does look, uh, you know, like a Romani more than me at all. And then because in me it's only one quarter of the blood that is Romani. So I would say, you know, for me, uh, when I finished high school, I moved right to uh, from central Russia to uh, the city Perm, which is, you know, uh, by Ural Mountains. So it took me a day to travel by train, right? I didn't have money to travel by plane. And uh, just, you know, uh, it wasn't very common to travel by plane at the time, especially for students. So I would hop on, the pl- you know, on one train to Moscow and then another train to Perm at the age of 17. So I have, you know, since 17 years old, I'm used to kind of living uh, away uh, and making home where I move. So... Obviously, uh, finishing uh, pharmacy school, coming back to Voronezh, and then planning my graduate school uh, education, and then moving to Texas was sort of that part of, you know, uh, how to say, maybe I was kind of, you know, getting back to my roots, right? Romani, you know, have been across the world, and sort of they find their place, you know, they live there, and then they move, and then they move again. And I feel that... um, I never had that, you know, sensation that I would miss something and then, you know, I would miss something else, if it makes sense, I guess, you know, uh, because obviously that, that's, I think, a bit of a psychological context, right, how you feel yourself and, you know, you just come and make your, you know, place and it, it doesn't mean, obviously, that, you know, I stopped any communication. Obviously, my mom is an important figure in my life that I keep, you know, in connection with and miss her in that end. But, you know, certain place or context um, is is not something that I have been attached and maybe because I had that, you know, experience uh, rather earlier in, in my life yeah. where I moved away and, you know, sort of uh, was exploring places. No, I was just going to say I, the sense that I get, and, and and I'd like you to correct me if I'm if I'm mis- mishearing this, is you, I, I I'm hearing like you move through the world with a certain lightness, like you travel light in a sense as a person. <laughs> That's a gypsy in her. That's a gypsy in her. <laughs> Yes, I, I, you are saying correct, I mean, yes, I, I feel like, you know, that maybe it's sometimes that I honestly find myself that it's not that good, right, not to have that attachment to, to a place, um, but that's in me, right, I'm just, you know, yeah, I suppose, I, yeah. yes, I, I like that, too, you know, like everything, you have is plus and, and it's ups yeah. and it's flips, it's upside and downside, I suppose, yeah. like everything else, right. Right. And, and, and at the same time, I don't want to, you know, make an impression that, you know, like this new term that is widely used on the internet called, you know, like a nomad, digital, oh, digital nomad. nomad yeah. <laughs> no, I, 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 very, I very strongly yeah. associate myself with Russia and my culture and my heritage being gypsy by 
one quarter. Uh, that's that's part of me that's inalienable, but it just doesn't is not necessarily attached to a place. Uh, if you were to ask me, would I have liked to live in Russia right now? I would say yes, because it's my homeland. Uh, will I move there eventually? I think yes as well. But at the same time, do I really, you know, at a particular moment, uh, have something that I, you know, strongly miss? Um, I, so I it's something like it's that. something like a sense of place without a sense of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Would that be about it? I think so. Yes, I think, uh, and it's I think about people around, right? A lot of our inner nostalgia comes from being away from people rather than places. Mm. I feel. Uh, yes, I miss my mom, and she used to come every year. And now that has been interrupted, the cycle of her, you know, visiting uh, annually, and I do miss that uh, definitely. So, uh, but not, you know, not the sense of, you know, like a, uh, I don't know, like a particular. Maybe, maybe I miss my grandmother's house, which was sold when I was twelve years old, when my mom, uh, grandmother passed away. That house was sold, and I honestly, you know, about a couple of years ago, I felt like, you know, I really want to go back to the village to visit that house. Whoever lives there, that nostalgia. Maybe go to visit the grave. That that is present. Um, but that appeared just recently again. You know, uh, ability to look into your childhood through doing. Yeah. Wow. I think you're beginning to sound like I don't want to say every immigrant, but I have that sense of feeling too. Like, because every time I go home, it doesn't quite match the fantasies I've built around home as a structure. Because people have moved away, they've changed. I don't get the jokes anymore. A different was almost like almost we could easily be speaking different languages, but you still yearn for that place of understanding without having to over communicate, right, with your people. So yeah, thanks for thanks for that reminder. Yeah, that's I always I, I always like to say like never visit the past because it's, it's, like, it's always a trust. Like just <laughs> no. leave it in your memory. I like to <laughs> leave, leave it in your memory because it's never the same. It's like it's, it's never the, the fantasy, same. right? Yeah, it's yeah, never this. Yeah, if you go back yeah. to it, then it turns out. Yeah, it's like it's like high school reunions and going back to the streets you grew up in. You know, and you think not they're not standing where the past doesn't stay. You who was it that said yeah, the yeah. past doesn't stay yeah. past? I, it's not, it's past, not even yeah. the, the past is not even the past is not dead it's not even past something like that yeah the past is not even past i think that was um william faulkner yeah yeah, yeah the past is so, never dead yeah. it's not even past yeah william faulkner allegedly said that but i think they're still fighting over who said it um so now if i get you right we shouldn't be going for our reunion parties right like high school reunion 20 year because my high school reunion is coming up and i really don't want to go because i'm like the one I care about, I keep in touch with the rest of you. I don't care much about. See, ya. just kidding, but I don't want to go. No, I had no, I personally had a reunion with my pharmacy school uh, last yeah. year. So there were very handful that showed up, uh, but mm. yeah, no, I I had a reunion. And it was very lovely to see the. I mean, to talk to people who I went to pharmacy school. Maybe if reunions were focused on past during past century, as. <laughs> and maybe they were more future thinking like oh we we the only commonality we have is that we went to the same school but let's think about the future i think they just want to go back to places and things you you really don't want to revisit because high school was kind of traumatic for most people but anyways i digress <laughs> um I, I think that's really it Sorry, I think, I, well I, I will say one thing about reunions just just one thing about reunions is um i think 
I agree with you. Like it would probably be useful if they were sort of future focused. I f- I feel like one of the things that happens, and this is a comment on the past in general, I suppose, is you you were someone then, and you're not necessarily that same person now, and they also have grown in different directions. And so, a big part of reunions, I think, is the way I've learned to think about them is people tend to think about them as, oh, let me gather with these people and relieve what we had. For me, it's more like let me let me find out who these people are now. So it's almost like it's like an adventure, right? It's not it's not nostalgia. It's like I don't know what I'm going into. I have no clue who these people are, <laughs> and I'm entering into like. <laughs> oh, I totally resonate. Yes, but then but then sometimes you make friends with people you were never friends with back then. Or you find that people you are close to back then are no longer, like you don't connect anymore. Well, sometimes, some, sometimes, sometimes you're friends with them on different terms as well, with your old friends. But like you know, just different terms than before. If it, if it takes going to reunion to reunite a friendship, then was it really a friendship in the first place? Like you know, I knew where you were because I can find you on Facebook. Well, we've we've talked a lot today. We've explored, um, you know, Natasha's life, and I mean, there's still so many questions I want to ask you, but we can save that for next time. Um, but I don't know if um, Dr. Emily has any um, like final words to how to say final words. Don't say it's not my final word in Jesus' name. <laughs> <laughs> so so morbid. What are your final words? <laughs> I wish I knew. Mine would be, I told you I was sick. <laughs> That's not good. That's not good. I take that back. Right. Um, yeah. Thanks, thanks a lot, Natasha. I love meeting sort of people from contexts that I wasn't like expecting or used to. So um, I don't, I don't think I've said this today, but like, I don't, I've actually, I've not personally been like i've not personally been interacting with any russian that i know of um so i'm sure i've i'm sure i've met some russians maybe like you know at stores or whatever or you know maybe like i've talked to them somewhere but like i didn't know that they were russian um or russian you know um origin um so yeah it's this this it's and i i really i really enjoy these sorts of things and getting to know sort of how people see themselves um and you know yeah and and seeing 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 your history and your culture through your eyes um and sort of thinking about what that you know yeah because i think i think this is one thing that i think is missing in a lot of in well i suppose the world today is the world has become smaller hasn't it and we've all sort of become sort of squished up um and, and i think sometimes that gives us this idea that we know more than we do um and and i find that there's something that's so powerful in a sort of localists approach to things where when when i'm when i'm reading about russia and i don't know any russian it's abstract isn't it but then when i know one russian even if it's just one it's not personal it's no longer oh that country over there doing the thing with the other country over there it's Oh, this person 
it's this country that's attached to this person that I have come to know in some sense. Um, and now it's not just, you know, in, in psychology, we'll say it's, it's shifts from um, semantic memory to episodic memory, right? To just information to like, it's not part of like my biography and part of like my personal history. Um, and I think that matters for how we think about and engage with each other. Um, and I think a lot of what we we're losing in the world comes from that sense of impersonality and lack of embodiment that just seems to, you know, suffuse everything. I'm going to stop rambling now. <laughs> well said. Thank you, Ayamide. I'm very honored to be the first Russian you learned a little more about. <laughs> Things I do for you, Ayamide. Things I do for you. <laughs> well, um, thank you. Thank you so much, Natasha. Thanks a lot for coming on the show today. And I'm, I'm very positive that even your experience, even though it was a tiny bit of your life we explored on the show, would be of um, immense um, usefulness to our listeners. And so on behalf of everyone on the show, I want to say thank you so much for uh, being here today. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone. Um, don't forget to catch up on past episodes of the Monsible Podcast. Um, yeah, we will catch you guys on another episode of the show. This is Mo and... <laughs> This is a fun episode. This is more and more. I agree. Here we go. Finally. (laughs) All right, um, Natasha. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, guys. All right, bye. Bye. Bye.